0: So if you have your Bible with you, open up to 2 Timothy chapter 1, the year 62 AD, about 30 years after Christ was crucified and rose from the dead. The apostle Paul at this time in 62 AD was arrested in Jerusalem for insurrection. He was accused of an uprising against the government. But as a Roman citizen, Paul realized that he would not get a fair trial in Jerusalem. So he exercised his Roman right to appear before Caesar. Paul said, I want to go to, I want to go to Rome. Send me to Rome where I'll appear and I'll appeal my case before Caesar. So Paul went to Rome and he waited for his appearance before the Caesar, Caesar Nero at that time. And he waited in prison for almost two years. And although there is no record of Paul ever appearing before Caesar Nero, I'm sure I'm confident that Paul shared the gospel with him. After two years, Paul was released for prison, released from prison in Rome. You see, the man who brought the gospel to the Gentiles, I believe, stood before the king of the Gentiles. I believe he shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with them, And I believe, that, I believe that Caesar Nero rejected that gospel. After all, that's what Paul was told he would do when he was saved. On the road to Damascus, Paul was told that he would share the name of Christ before Gentiles and before kings. And I fully believe that he shared that time shared that gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ with Caesar Nero. You see, secular historians, they tell us that after around this time of 63 AD, there was a distinct or a difference in Caesar Nero. He changed, something happened. Some people believe it was a result of his rejection of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Some people even believe that he may have been demon-possessed. But what took place was Nero went insane. He went insane and it's possibly due to this rejection of the gospel or his or his demon possession. He began doing crazy things like murdering his first wife, killing his very own mother for political gain. Just he was an egomaniac who loved to show off his building project. The guy was nuts. In July, on July 19th of 64 AD, a fire started in the woodshed near Circus Maximus. Circus Maximus was where they would race the chariots around in a circle. A fire started in a woodshed near there. The fire burned the city of Rome for 10 days, torched two-thirds of the downtown area. Since Nero's servants were seen running from the woodshed after the fire began, people began to suspect that Nero started the fire. But why would he burn his own city? Why would he do such a thing? Perhaps he was such an egomaniac, he wanted to do it just so that he could rebuild it in honor of himself. Just, so he, just because he could. When the fingers started pointing at Nero, when his plan, or we don't know for sure it happens, but when people began to question, maybe Nero's the one that started the fire. He needed a scapegoat. He needed to figure out what to do. He needed to blame somebody. So do you know what he did? He blamed the Christians. He put the Christians on trial. It's the Christians' fault. It's the followers of Jesus Christ. They're the ones that started the fire. They're the ones that burned our great city. And then he began to torment. He began to persecute. He began to harass. He began to do such despicable things to Christians that is almost unthinkable. He dipped them in hot oil, set them on fire to light the gardens of his parties. He clothed them in animal skins and threw them to the wild dogs. He fed them to lions. He had them executed by gladiators. Nero's persecution was relentless and merciless upon the Christians. Finally, in 65 AD, Nero arrested the two leaders of Christianity, Peter and Paul. Peter and Paul were both arrested by Caesar Nero in 65 AD. That same year, Peter was crucified. Remember how he died? Church history tells us he, didn't, he wasn't crucified right side up. Instead, he was crucified upside down because Peter said he was not worthy to be crucified the same way or in the same manner that his Lord was crucified. The Apostle Paul, this was his second arrest, and he would be beheaded only a few months later. But before the Apostle Paul dies, between the time of his second arrest in Rome and before his beheading, he writes one final letter. This final letter of 2 Timothy, it's written to his beloved son in the faith, Timothy. Paul knows that he's about to die. He knows that he's facing certain death, but he wants to tell Timothy a few things. There's some important things that Paul wants to communicate to Timothy before he goes. He says in 2 Timothy, he he says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure is at hand. Paul knows he's dead. He knows he's not getting out. He says, I fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I've kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge will give me on that day. And not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. You see, the apostle Paul knew that my time, his time was very, very short. And he wants to pen this final letter, this final word of encouragement. It's both personal and encouraging to Timothy. In chapter 1 of 2 Timothy, we're going to see three important things happen. We're going to see Paul tell Timothy three important things. He's going to say to Timothy, stir up the gift of God which is in you. And we'll cover that this morning. A little farther on, he's going to say, don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of my testimony The third thing he's going to tell Timothy is hold fast to the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me or heard from the Apostle Paul. As Paul awaits the date of his execution, he writes these final words to his young protege, Timothy. And we will begin studying 2 Timothy this morning. So if you'd follow along, I'm going to read the first seven verses that we'll look at this morning. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God according to the promise of life which is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, a beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve with a pure conscience as my forefathers did, as without ceasing I remember you in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see you, being mindful of your tears, that I may be filled with joy. When I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, I am persuaded is in you also. Therefore I remind you to stir up the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. In verse 3, Paul mentions being mindful of Timothy's tears. Perhaps Paul's remembering Timothy's face at the time that he was arrested. Just possibly, Timothy watched as his dear friend Paul was taken into custody, and Paul looks back, and he looks, and he comes face to face with Timothy, and he he sees Timothy crying. Perhaps that's what he's remembering, not knowing if they'd ever see each other again. And then as Timothy receives this letter from Paul, he opens up the parchment, and the first word that he reads is, Paul, Paul. Can you imagine the emotion that that would invoke in his heart? He sees this letter is from Paul. I thought I'd never hear from him again. I I thought he was gone. I I didn't even know if he was alive. See, they didn't have the internet. They didn't have Facebook and Twitter. They couldn't keep track of each other that way. He didn't know what had happened to Paul. But he gets this letter. And you can imagine how he would cherish it. And how the emotion would be moved in his heart. As he opens a letter, he reads, Paul, this is a letter from my friend. A letter from my mentor. Timothy needed this because times were tumultuous. Persecution was in full swing. Christians were being, like I said, burned and fed to animals and just persecuted like you wouldn't believe, killed, martyred at the stake. Timothy needed to hear this from Paul. But he goes on to say in verse 1, Paul, look what he says, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, according to the promise of life which is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, a beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Most of his letters he does that. And a lot of times in his letters he's, he's refuting him or, or he's, he's, he's basically you know, establishing his apostleship. But Timothy already understands he's an apostle and Paul knows this letter will be read by other people, but he wants to make it clear he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. In this letter he's not necessarily defending it, he's just simply, he's just simply declaring it. He's reminding Timothy of it, but he says something important. He says, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, by the will of God. The phrase, the will of God reflects Paul's deep consciousness of the divine purpose for his life. Mm-hmm. You see, when Paul says, I'm an apostle by the will of God, he understands that there's a godly purpose for my life. It's not, I'm not just an apostle because I chose to be. I'm not just an apostle because it paid well. I'm not just an apostle because I thought it'd be fun to get beaten up and go to prison a couple times and be left for it. That, That sounds like an exciting life. I want some excitement in my life. No, Paul doesn't say that. Paul says, I'm an apostle by the will of God, according to the promise of life, he says. According to the promise of life. This gives the purpose of Paul's apostleship. He's an apostle by the will of God, according to the promise of life. Paul says, I am sent to proclaim the gospel of life. I am here to proclaim the gospel of faith in Jesus Christ. That is my mission. That is my goal. That is what I want to accomplish. And when he says he has finished the race, he means he's accomplished that in his lifetime. Now, I find it interesting. He says, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus. This is a man in a jail cell waiting to die, talking about eternal life. Think about that. He's in a jail cell waiting to die, and he's proclaiming life. Paul clearly has an eternal perspective, doesn't he? Oh, we miss that sometimes, don't we? We can get so caught up in what's going on around us, we lose that eternal perspective. If I was in that jail cell, I'm sad to say I'd probably be complaining to God. God, why am I here? I'm your servant. Don't you know what I did for you? Why is this happening to me? This is terrible. God, if you love me, you wouldn't. That's not what Paul's heart is. Paul says, I'm going to proclaim the gospel till my very last breath in a jail cell. Rather than feeling sorry for himself, he's penning a letter to his friend, Timothy, because he wants to encourage Timothy. Why? Because Timothy's still out there fighting for the gospel. Mm. Paul's locked up. Timothy's still out there. And Paul says, I want to tell you. I want to tell you more. I want to encourage you. I want to help you. You see, in this one verse. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, makes me ask this question. Do you recognize the divine purpose in your life? Do you realize that there's a divine purpose for you for your life? Make verse 1, make it personal. Instead of Paul, write your name there. And instead of an apostle, write your career there. Or, your, or Rebecca, a wife. Rebecca, a mother. Rob, a police officer of Jesus Christ by the will of God. You see, sometimes I think we look past the divine purpose for our life and we don't realize that there really is a divine purpose in being a wife, a godly wife. There is a divine purpose in being a godly mother, a teacher, whatever it is that you're doing. You see, sometimes we have a tendency to think ministry. That's just what the pastor does. He's the minister. No, no, there's a divine purpose if you're a businessman. There's a divine purpose if you're an engineer. There's a divine purpose if you're an airline pilot. There's a divine purpose in your life. Do you recognize that? You see, sometimes I think if you're anything like me, you kind of forget about it sometimes. And you just figure this is who I am. This is what I do. It's just no big deal. I don't even like my job. If you'll see your ministry as your, your job or you'll, if you'll see it as a divine purpose and see it as your ministry, it'll change the way you look at it. It'll change the way you interact with the people that you work with. It'll change the way that you speak to the people. It'll change everything about it. It'll change your attitude and your heart towards it. Look at yourself. Do you recognize the divine purpose in your life? You should. The apostle Paul certainly recognizes it. And he goes on, he says to Timothy, a beloved son. Notice the personal touch, a beloved son. Timothy wasn't really his son, but Timothy is someone Paul had taken time to invest in. Mm -hmm. Timothy is someone that Paul had taken time to train. Timothy is someone that Paul's taking time to communicate with. Do you have a Timothy in your life? Have you found somebody? Are you looking for somebody to invest in? Are you looking for someone to teach the things of God that are being taught to you? Or are you just someone who's poured it all in? No, I just need it. I just need it. I just, just pour it all in. Give it all all the knowledge. No, it's got to come out. Otherwise, you're going to pop. It, it, you got to give it out. I mean, that, that's the whole purpose. We want to reflect God's righteousness. We want to reflect his, his, his love. We want to reflect the things of God. I have to be, you have to be looking for people to pour into. It's not just all about you. It's not all about me. You see God has this divine purpose and he wants to use it at our job in our homes as a, as a husband as a wife as a mom as a dad. He wants to use it in all these places but sometimes we section it off. Church that's where I meet God. Not at work. No no, not here. Not not not, not no I don't like those people. I'm not no that no God wants to see, wants us to see that divine purpose in our life. Go to work tomorrow morning with a different outlook on your job. See it as I am a, and you fill it in. Instead of apostle, you put in your career there. You put it in there. Put your name, what you do of Jesus Christ by the will of God according to the promise of life. Mm -hmm. I'm doing this according to the promise of life. I'm not doing it because I want to. I'm doing it because God's called me to. I'm not doing it because I have to, because I get a paycheck. I'm doing it because this is my ministry. You see, it'll change the way you look at everything. And he goes on, he says, Grace, mercy, and peace. Grace and peace are Paul's common greetings. Usually, uh, that's how he starts his letters: "Grace and peace to you." However, it's kind of interesting whenever he writes of what, we, what we're known or what's known as a pastoral epistle—First and Second Timothy and Titus—he always adds one more. He says, "Mercy, grace, mercy, and peace." So why do you do that, Paul? I think it's because he knows pastors need a whole lot of mercy. I think he understands, you know, there's, there's, hey, there's a lot of things we can mess up. We're not perfect. And he understands that as he's encouraging pastors in First and Second Timothy and Titus, mercy is important. But he goes on. He says, I thank God whom I serve with a pure conscience. As my forefathers did, as without ceasing, I remember you in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see you. Mindful of your tears, that I may be filled with joy when I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded is in you also. I thank God. Are you kidding me? He's in prison. He's in, he's in a jail cell and he's thanking God. What could Paul possibly be thanking God for? Listen, historians believe that Paul was held in what was known as the infamous Mamertine prison in Rome. It's not a jail cell like we have here at the local county jail or the state prison. No, no, it was more like a dungeon. It's where prisoners were put when they were waiting for execution. It was cold, it was damp, probably smelled bad. In fact, it was built underneath of the city sewer system. So what do you think it was like in there? We're told that oftentimes prisons were chained in there standing up. It wasn't a comfortable place. The conditions were deplorable, worse than we could ever imagine. And the Apostle Paul, who would be a man that says, follow me as I follow Christ, is thanking God in spite of his circumstances. In spite of his circumstances. Listen, don't let anything ever stop you from thanking God. Don't let anything. Paul wasn't thanking God for his health because we know he had a thorn in his flesh. Paul wasn't thanking God for his financial situation, was he? Didn't really matter how much money he had or didn't have at that point in his life. Paul wasn't thanking God for his living conditions. He wasn't even thanking God for his family at that point. What was he thanking God for? Paul was thanking God for the genuine faith that that was in his friend Timothy. Timothy. I want that kind of relationship with the Lord, but I can, I, can, I can be in a situation like Paul is and thank God for my friend's faith. I think I'd be questioning my own faith. I'd be going, God, I don't understand this. What's going on? Not Paul. Paul said, I'm thanking God for the faith. Anything he had, that might've been the thing that he was holding on to." Timothy hadn't forsaken me yet. Because we read everybody else is gonna leave him. Timothy was there. Luke was still around. Maybe he's holding on to his friend, Timothy. He's going to ask Timothy, come see me before winter. Bring a coat. By the way, it was cold last winter. Come see me, Timothy. You see, ask yourself this question. Are you a person who thanks God or do your prayers sound more like complaints? Do you spend time with God thanking him for everything? Or do we just kind of take those things for granted? Nah, that's just what he owes me, right? I mean, I, I deserve a good marriage. I deserve a good, you know, good kids. I, I don't need to thank God. Just, it's just, that's what he owes me. I'm his son, right? Parents, you know, as a child, you don't thank your parents for everything because you just figure that's their job. That's, that's the, you know, they're supposed to raise me. They're supposed to feed me. They're supposed to do these things. That's not the way our relationship should be with the Lord. We should be people who thank God. Our prayers shouldn't sound like we're complaining, like we're whining, like a little spoiled child. Instead, they should sound like we're men, we're women whose heart is set on eternity. My heart is set on eternity, recognizing the importance of the people in your life. That's what Paul did. All this stuff can be gone, but you can still maintain friendships. You can still maintain that connection. Our heart is set on eternity. We're recognizing the importance of the people in our life. We're discarding or forgetting the temporal stuff of the world. Thank you, God, for my house. Your house isn't guaranteed to be there tomorrow. Thank you, God, for my job. That's not guaranteed to be there tomorrow. Thank you for my mind. That might not be there tomorrow. You see, we need, to thank, we need to be people who are thanking God. Paul will tell Timothy five things, and five important things in this section. Number one, he says, whom I serve with a pure conscience. Paul's telling Timothy, I am serving God with a pure conscience. That's important for Timothy to know, because what Paul was saying is at this present time, even though I'm incarcerated, even though I'm in jail, even though everybody's, what do you think they were saying about Paul. What do you think the Christian community was talking about, Paul? We can gossip with the best of them, can't we? What happened to Paul? He must have done something wrong. He's gone out there. He's gone loopy. What, what's going on with Paul? What, no matter what was saying, Paul's telling Timothy, his friend, Timothy, I am serving God with a pure conscience. There is nothing I have done wrong. I might be in prison, I might be in chains, but it's for the gospel, not because I've misrepresented God, not because I've caused an uprising, not because I've done anything wrong. I am serving because I have shared the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I can say to you now, Timothy, my conscience is pure. Even though he was in prison, he was pure and clean before Jesus Christ. That's probably something Timothy needed to hear, don't you think? Because Timothy's like the rest of us. He would have wondered Wonder what's going on with Paul. I wonder if he really did go off the deep end like everybody says. You want to have your faith rocked? Go get on the internet. Start reading the other blog. Start reading stuff on the internet about, 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 about non-believers, about atheists, about all the different things. It'll have you confused. Your head will spin. You'll go, I don't know what I believe. I'm sure Timothy had some doubts. And here Paul, he reassures him, I'm serving God with a pure conscience. No matter what happens, Timothy, know this. I haven't fallen. I haven't faltered. I'm still running the race. Wow. In that position from prison, he says... I'm still running the race. Number two, he says to Timothy, hey, Timothy, I remember you in my prayers. Oh, don't you like to hear when somebody's praying for you? Don't you love it when somebody sends you a letter or a text or an email, say, hey, I'm praying for you today. You just, not only are they thinking about you, they're praying for you. Oh, I love to get those. But he says, without ceasing, I remember you in my prayers night and day. He didn't have anything else to do. He's in prison. I'm praying for you, Timothy. You're on the outside. You're sharing the gospel. That's what I want to hear from friends. There's nothing better. And do you ever notice it always comes at exactly the right time? Always at exactly the right time. Here it comes. How encouraging it is. And always seems to be there just when you need it most. And I want to encourage you that if you are praying for somebody, don't be afraid to send them a text or send them a message or email them or even call them. That's a novel idea. Call them and let them know, hey, I'm praying for you today. I did that this morning. You know that? There was somebody that was put on my heart. I was praying for him this morning uh, early, and I sent him a text this morning. I said, hey, I just want you to know I'm praying for you today. And uh, he sent back thanks, and that was it. You know, but it's important that we know that, that we we need to hear that from each other as believers. You know, we talk about prayer requests. If somebody have a prayer request, you know, and don't do it because I just said it, but if you're praying for Jordan this week, send him an email or a text. Hey Jordan, I'm praying for you. It might be the very he might be on the he might be teetering on something. I'm gonna go this way, I'm gonna go that way. And he gets that request, that that text or that email or that phone call and says, All right, God's still with me. You know? What how how great is this? Paul says, I'm serving with the pure conscience. I remember you in my prayers. And number three, I I want to see you, Timothy. I wish I could see you. I greatly desire to see you. Paul says, I want to. Later in the book, Paul will tell Timothy to be diligent to come to him. He will tell Timothy to bring my coat, so he won't have to suffer any long winters. This will likely never happen. Paul probably never saw Timothy again, but his desire was there to see Timothy. And he also says, I remember your tears. Number four, I remember your tears. Paul says, I want to see you. I'm remembering what you look like. I'm remembering it. If, in fact, they were together when Paul was arrested, which is certainly possible. It's not biblical, but it's certainly a possibility. He's remembering Timothy's tears. Whenever they were together the last time, for whatever reason, Paul remembers the tears on Timothy's face. Whatever what was shared, whatever, whatever took place in his life, their relationship was such that he says, I remember those tears. And I want you to know that I'm praying for you, and I can't wait to see you again. But then the last thing, or the fifth thing, he says... <clears throat> Is I am filled with joy when I remember the genuine faith that is in you. I am filled with joy when I remember the genuine faith that is in you. Genuine faith. Genuine, that means unhypocritical faith. That means without hypocrisy. You see, sometimes in Christianity, there's a lot of hypocritical faith out there. It's not genuine faith, it's not true faith. By the way, the word hypocrisy comes from the Greek word hypocrisis It means playing a part on the stage or putting on a mask to misrepresent reality. The actors in the Greek theater were called hypocrites. That's what they called them. We call them actors and actresses. They were called hypocrites. Why? Because they're pretending to be somebody else. There's no place for that in Christianity. There's no place for hypocrisy. The sad thing is oftentimes the church is called a bunch of hypocrites. We shouldn't be that way. Not that we're perfect. We're not perfect. We're going to make mistakes, and we need to make sure that people know that we are make mistakes. We should never elevate ourselves to a position in somebody's eyes that if we do make a mistake, they call us a hypocrite. They should know right up front: I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. I'm no better than you because I'm just because I'm the pastor and God's called me to teach on Sunday mornings. I struggle with the same things that you. There's no angels in my house that sing when my alarm clock goes off in the morning. That doesn't happen. I wake, I wake up cranky like the rest of you. We can all be cranky Christians once in a while, can't we? hypocrisy is not something that should be part of our lives. We should be able to be open with one another. And I love the fact that Jordan shared this morning, I need prayer. I'm battling this month. I've got a big step of faith coming up. Would you guys pray for me? We have an opportunity as a church to gather around. And here's what I also know. Jordan, of, of, Jordan was willing to raise his hand, but there's lots of you in here this morning that are going, I'm battling with stuff too. I got problems too. And, and I just, I'm embarrassed. I'm not, I don't like to talk in front of people. I'm not raising my hand. Listen, prayer at calvarycumberland.org. That's the email address. Send it to prayer at calvarycumberland.org. We will put it out to our prayer list and we will pray for it. You can keep it as vague or as detailed as you want. It's up to you. But if you're struggling and this is your church, or even if it's not your church and you need prayer, send it to us, we will pray for you. When that email goes out, some people I'm sure just get it and go out oh, on another request. I don't. I pray for every one of them that comes across there. I know my wife does the same and I know many other people do the same thing on our Sunday night prayer group. We'll pray for you. We'll, you know, let us know if you have a prayer request. Don't carry the burden by yourself. Let us come alongside of and pray for you. So what's the difference, Rob, between hypocritical faith and true faith? You brought up the difference. What what is it? Well, I found this article, and I kind of want to... I changed it a little bit because of the old English, but I want to read it to you. The Puritan Thomas Watson in the late 1600s wrote about six differences between sincere faith and hypocritical faith. Because if you're like me, you wonder, well, which one is mine? Do Do I have sincere faith? Is my faith real? Or is my faith the hypocritical faith that the pastor's talking about up there today? Listen, number one, a hypocritical faith is easy to come by. It's easy to come by. It is like the seed in the parable which sprung up suddenly. A false faith shoots up without any convictions or soul humblings. Surely it is of a different nature and will quickly wither away. It'll quickly wither away. Times get tough, it's gone. But true faith, being an outlandish plant and of a heavenly extraction, is hard to come by. It's hard to come by. It is emotional. It is exhausting. The spiritual infant is not born without pain. True faith is going to be tested. It's going to be difficult. It doesn't just happen. A hypocritical faith just pops up, and then as soon as something goes wrong, it goes away. It's not a lasting faith. Number two, a a hypocritical faith, it's afraid to come to trial. It's afraid to come to trial. doesn't want to be tested. The hypocrite would rather have his faith commended. He'd rather have it commended than examined. He can no more endure a scriptural trial than counterfeit metal can endure the touchstone. He's like a man who has stolen goods in his house and is very unwilling to have his house searched. Tell me how great my faith is, but don't really examine it. Don't really look at it. Don't really hold it to the Bible. I have stolen stuff in my house. Don't search it. So the hypocrite has gotten some stolen goods that the devil has helped him to. And he hates to have his heart searched. Are you willing to have your heart searched? Whereas the faith, true faith, is willing to come to a trial. It says, examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my mind and my heart. True faith is never afraid of the light. Do you see the difference? Hypocritical and true faith. Number three, a hypocritical faith has a slight hint of true faith. There's a hint of true faith there. There's a little bit there. The hypocrite hears others speak in the commendation of faith, but he wonders where the value of it lies. What's the purpose? Where's the value of it? He looks upon faith as a drug or a commodity. He'll part with all his faith he has for the right price. I'll trade everything I have for the right price. But the man who has true faith sets a high value on it. He reckons his grace among his jewels. What incorporates him into Christ? But faith. Faith is his basis for his relationship with Christ. He'd never give that up is what he's saying. Never would that that be given up. What puts him into a state of sonship? I'm a son of God. Faith puts me there. Faith puts you there. A believer would not exchange his shield of faith for a crown of gold. Too many believers exchange their faith for things of the world. When the times get tough, they just exchange their faith. I tried God, it didn't work out. I tried God. I did that church thing, I did that Bible thing, I did that for a while. Listen, that's not true faith. That's hypocritical faith. You exchanged it. A hypocritical faith, number four, is lame on one hand. With one hand, the hypocrite would take up Christ. Yeah, give me Christ. But on the other hand... He does not give himself to Christ. He'll take up Christ, but he won't give himself to Christ. He would take Christ as a guarantee yep, I want forgiveness of my sins, but not give himself by way of surrender. I want you to guarantee me, God, that I'm not going to hell, but you can't have my life. I want what you have to offer. I don't want hell. I I want all that good stuff, but I'm not giving up my life of sin. I'm not turning away from that. I only want, no, no, I want, I want my cake and eat it too. You see, that's what they're really saying. I want what you got. God, I want a godly marriage. I want these things. I want, you know, but no, I'm not trading what I, no, no, no. These are my things. You can't have that. That's hypocritical faith. It's not true faith. True faith is going to turn things over to the Lord. Listen, number five, a hypocritical, hypocritical faith is impure. It's impure. The hypocrite says he believes, yet he goes on in sin. He is all creed, but no commandment. In other words, he's all talk, but no action. There's all talk coming up. I believe in Jesus. I believe in God. I believe in the Bible, but there's nothing changing in his life or her life. That's what he's saying here. He believes, yet he will take God's name in vain. These imposters would call God their father, yet sin as fast as they could. For someone to say they live in faith, but still sin... Is like someone saying they are healthy after their heart has stopped beating. Is it possible? In other words, he's saying it's not possible. But a true faith is joined with holiness. Though faith does not wholly or completely remove sin in our life, it certainly will subdue it. It certainly gives you the power over it. It certainly no longer requires you to be a slave to it. Number six, a hypocritical faith is a dead faith it tastes no sweetness in christ christ there's, there's no sweetness in christ it's just it's just he's, he's just my guarantee my guarantor just so i don't go to hell there's no there's no connection there's no relation there's no the word of god is not sweet it's just it's just it's dead the hypocrite, the hypocrite tastes something in the vine and the olive the food that he eats he finds contentment in the carnal luscious delights of the world where do you find your contentment But no sweetnesses, he finds no sweetnesses, or she finds no sweetnesses in the promises of God. Do the promises of God mean something to you? Do you hold on to What do you think Paul was holding on to when he was in prison facing death? What about our brothers and sisters that are martyred today? What are they holding on to? They're holding on to the promise of eternal life. They're holding on to the promises of God. True faith finds much delight in heavenly things. The word is sweeter than the honeycomb. Christ's love is better than the wine. True faith. There's a difference between genuine faith and hypocritical faith. Which kind do you have? Which one do you have? You say, Rob, I might be the person here this morning that has the hypocritical faith. A a lot of those things that you said in there, I'm, I'm doing. Do you know that that's up to you to change? You can do it. It's a matter of just repenting and turning back to the Lord. Making the things of the word important. No longer just hearing the word of God, but being a doer of the word of God. It's up to you to change. It's not hard to change. And it'll, it won't change overnight. It change, changes slowly. Listen, the Holy Spirit will do all the work. All you have to do is be willing to let him. So when the Holy Spirit says, stop doing this, what do you do? You stop. When the Holy Spirit says, stop thinking this, Stop saying this. What do you do? You stop. That's the only thing you have to do. You stop it. He will do the work in you. He will point out all the changes that need to be made in you. I can't give you a list of 10 things that will make you a good Christian. Because you would do all those 10 things and still be a wreck inside. God knows you far better than I do. And he will do this in you if you will let him. Now, Paul reminds Timothy to do something specific. He says, therefore... In verse 6, therefore I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. Paul instructs or he reminds Timothy here to do something. He says, Timothy, I want you to stir up the gift of God which is in you. Notice a couple of things. The origin, where did the gift of God come from? From God. The gift that is in Timothy comes from God. It's not coming from Paul. It's coming from God. It is a gift of God. Notice the location of Timothy's gift. It is in you. It is in you. It's an internal operation, not an external manifestation. He's not talking about gifts of the Spirit in, in, in the sense that we know of, of gifts, fruit of the Spirit, things here. He's talking about this internal operation, not necessarily this external manifestation, although it would eventually become an external manifestation. Paul is recognizing the gift is within Timothy. Timothy, there's something in you it needs to be stirred up. Now, this word stir up, I like this. Anybody heat their home with wood? Anybody build a fire in a fireplace? That's what it means. It means to stir up like you would stoke a fire, like you would keep it burning. You would, uh, it means to keep it blazing, to keep it burning, to fan the flame. He's not insinuating here that the fire in Timothy's gone out. He's not correcting Timothy, saying, Timothy, you know, you're, you're, you've gone cold, you're, you're backslidden. That's not the case. Paul's telling Timothy, stir up this thing and you keep it burning, keep the fire blazing. What happens if you let the fire just sit? It burns out. It it goes down to coals and just sits there. But if you keep stirring it, if you keep manipulating and you set the wood up and you put the right thing, it's going to make a difference. And he's saying, Timothy, poke the fire in your life. Get it going, keep it burning. Brings me to a question, or at least if you're like me. You go, I wonder what the gift was that he was talking about. What was the thing? What was the gift that Paul's trying to encourage Timothy to stir up? Well, we haven't got there, we won't get there today, but Chapter 4, verse 5 says, But you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Paul's telling Timothy the gift of evangelism is within him. He already knows it's within him, and it needs to be stirred up. You need to stir this. Why would Paul say such a thing? Remember what's going on in Rome? Persecution is running rampant. What do you think Timothy's doing with his gift of evangelism in the midst of all this persecution? We know that Timothy's a little on the timid side. We know that Paul's always encouraging him to be bold. I think Timothy's, well, he's kind of gone indoors. He's kind of, well, I'm not going to say too much. I don't, I, don't my, I don't want my life to be taken. I, I don't, you know, maybe it'll just be my God, me and you, God, just a personal thing. I don't have to tell anybody else. Paul says, no, no, Timothy, you have a ministry that's been given to you. You have a gift of evangelism. You go use it. Timothy would be martyred himself just a few years after this. He would heed Paul's warning and go use his gift of evangelism. He was known to be timid. Paul's reminding him. Because look what he says. I love this. For God has not given us a spirit of fear. Why did he have to say that to Timothy? Because he knew Timothy's personality. He knew Timothy he was fearful. He knew that his, his, he was likely timid about this. Paul says, Timothy, you, God has not given you a, a spirit of fear. Instead, God has given you a spirit of power, a spirit of love, a spirit of sound mind. The spirit from God was powerful, loving, sound mind. Power, not referring to a powerful personality. He's not telling Timothy to be something he's not. He's talking about the strength of character to be bold in exercising authority over the churches there, to be bold, to be a bold leader. The power of the Holy Spirit enables a naturally timid man to develop boldness when called by God to to fulfill a difficult ministry during difficult times. Simply put, for you and for I, the power, the spirit of God in your life will give you the power to accomplish the will of God for your life. You can't accomplish God's will for your life without the power of the spirit of God in your life. You can't do it. You're not capable. That's the whole purpose of our creation is to fulfill his will, but we need him to do that. That's what we have to do. I need the power of God in my life to get up here every, every Sunday and teach. Without it, I don't have anything to offer you. My opinions, what does that mean? I'll just be gone and dead and whenever God takes me, that, that's nothing. But the word, when God empowers me to teach the word of God and I share it with you and it impacts your life, you go out and share it with somebody else. That's the power of God. Now he also says that we're not given a spirit of fear, but of power and of what? Of love. Of love. Of love. That's agape love. That's that unconditional, unsacrificial love. It's a self-sacrificing. It's a, it's a love that works and works for others. It's an active word. It's the type of love Paul wrote about in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's that, it's that love that moves you for something. Listen, the spirit of God in your life will give you the love to serve others. You can't have agape love without the spirit of God in your life. It doesn't exist. You can't fake it. You can't pretend it. You, it doesn't work that way. It's only by the power of God, the spirit of God in your life that gives you the ability to love people the way that God calls you to. It'll give you the ability to see people the way that he sees them. If you've never prayed that prayer, start asking God to show you people the way that he sees them. Say, Lord, would you just show us when you see somebody, what do you see? It'll change the way that you look at people. It'll, it'll, you, you, will, you will fall from being judgmental and laughing and making fun of people to being brokenhearted as you watch people that are walking through world, through this earth, not knowing a Savior in Jesus Christ. It'll, you'll be amazed. He will meet you there and he'll give that to you. It'll give you a compassion on people that you never had. But he also says he's given us the power of sound mind. What's that mean, sound mind? It means this, self-control or self-discipline. He's given you the power of self-control or self-discipline. The Spirit of God in your life will give you a sound mind or self-control and the self-discipline to subdue your flesh. Mm -hmm. You see, as a believer in Jesus Christ, I no longer have to follow my flesh wherever it takes it. I no longer have to go wherever it wants to go. You know what I can say to my flesh and my body? No, I'm not doing it. I'm not thinking it. I'm not going there. I'm not going to allow it to happen. You then become control of your flesh. If you don't have Christ in your life, you don't have that option. You're just going to, wherever your body wants to take you, wherever your flesh wants to go, you're just going to go with it. Wherever your emotions go, follow your heart. No, no, don't follow your heart. Follow the Lord. Mm-hmm. Follow Jesus Christ. Let Him be the one that leads you. Your heart is deceitfully wicked and will lead you astray. Mm-hmm. Follow the Lord. Follow the Word of God. Just like Timothy, God has given you a gift or gifts. You have them in your life also. And you and I are commanded. To stir up the gifts. Notice they have to be stirred up. They have to be fed. They have to be what do you have to do with the fire? You have to add wood to it, or what happens? It goes out. Listen, we have the commandment here, we have the encouragement to stir up the gifts. Think of your gift as a fire burning inside of you. You say, What's my gift, Rob? I don't know. You find that out. What's your talents? What's your gift? What has God given you? Are you stirring it up? Are you using it for God? You see, it's possible God's given you a gift and you're not even using it for him. You're using it for somebody else. You're using it for yourself. Listen, if I want to keep the fire of that gift burning, I have to add to it. I have to stir it up. You want to keep a fire burning, you have to put wood on it, don't you? Will any old wood do? No, if you want a fire to burn hot, you've got to put hard wood on it. How many of you burn pine in your wood stoves or your fireplaces? You wouldn't dare. Why? Because it's going to leave a sappy mess and a contaminant. You wouldn't dare do so. What do you want? You want oak. You want hickory. You want hardwoods that are going to be good woods. Well, how do we do that? How do we feed? How do we stir up the gift of God in our life? I'm going to give you a couple of ways. Number one, read the scriptures. Go to God's word. Go to his word. Let him stir it up in you. Go find out. There, there has to be a desire for you to know what, if you, if you're sitting here this morning and you don't know what your gift is, what God, what the things that God's given you, that's it. Go ask him, God, what have you given me? Show me. But how do I do that? Number two, prayer. Read the word of God. Pray. Spending time with the Lord. Worship. Spending time in worship. Serve other people. Begin serving others. I know we live in a culture where we're very selfish. It's all about me. Right? Me, 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 me. I am always on my mind. You were always on your mind. Let's put other people's first. Let's put other people first. Let's, Let's focus on how can I help somebody else this week? How can I come alongside and serve somebody else? God, would you... You'd be amazed. Struggle with temptation? Go serve somebody. You'll get your mind off yourself. Go serve somebody. Develop your gift. Practice your gift. What are the things that God's called you? Listen, nobody is born with a naturally perfected gift. Are they? No. People are born... If you take musicians, for an example, some are born more talented than others. There is a natural ability there. But do you think anybody has ever been a top-level musician without practicing? No. Do you think a top level athlete, there's born people who are born with athletic ability, but do you think they just decide, I'm going to walk out on the football field one day and be a star? No. What do they have to do? Practice. They have to develop, stir up their gift. They add the things they need. They add the training. They add the discipline. They add all those things. It's the same thing in our Christianity. If we would focus that much on our Christianity, what could God do? (coughs) Develop, practice your gift. Listen, the same power the same love, the same sound mind or self-discipline that is given to Timothy by the Spirit has been given to you and to I. For God has not given you a spirit of fear. He's not given you a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. What will you do with it? Father, we thank you for this time in your word. Lord, you have a way of shaking things up. You have a way of challenging us, yet gently Touching us and convicting us. Lord, maybe our faith. Maybe maybe we haven't had the kind of faith that we're supposed to have. Or maybe that's maybe that's, that's stuck, rung home, rang, you know, rang loud for us this morning. Maybe when it comes to talking about a gift, you, you think that's that's me. I I haven't spent I haven't spent time stirring up my gift. Instead I've been letting it smolder and it's it's going out. Before we close, just take a few minutes. Wherever you're at this morning, go before the Lord. Just offer him your heart. Be willing to allow him to search you. Maybe you need to recommit. If you don't know Jesus Christ, if you've never met him as your savior, during the next uh, instrumental song, I'm gonna be up here. I want you to come out of your chair and come sit with me or come stand with me. I'm gonna pray for you to accept Christ as your savior. If you've never done that before, maybe this morning is the day that you need to follow Jesus Christ and make make that decision in your life. For those that do know the Lord, take some time before your creator. See what he would have to say to you this morning specifically.